invite you to take the Word of God this morning and open it to Romans chapter 9. Today we come to Romans chapter 9, verse 30, and we will go down to chapter 10, verse 13. So Romans 9, beginning in verse number 30, and then down to chapter 10, verse number 13. I'd like to ask that you would stand out of reverence for God's Word, if you are able, as we read these ancient, holy, inspired words. The Apostle Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, and he says this, What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Will you join me in prayer? Father, we ask now as we come to your word that you would do your work in our lives through the Holy Spirit. Father, we confess our need for you. Lord, would you speak to us from your word this day? Lord, help us to flee and run away from any righteousness of our own that seeks to establish 
salvation before you. Lord, would you help us to run to Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Father, we pray that you would do your work in every person's life here this morning. May we all call upon you for salvation. It's in the name of our holy Savior we pray. Amen. Well, you may be seated. So, it really is true. The sun and the planets do not revolve around the earth, but rather the earth and the planets revolve around the sun. Just in case you were wondering from last week's sermon illustration of the Copernican Revolution, I did a fact check this week. That is true. And we as human beings are not the center of the universe. God does not revolve around us. We are the ones that revolve around him. Romans chapter 9 arranges or maybe rearranges our bearings. It shows us so clearly, doesn't it, that God is in control, not us. It shows us that if God did not choose us, we would not have chosen him. God is the one in Scripture that is making the promises, and God is the one who is keeping them. God is the one who shows mercy, and God is the one who causes that mercy to break into this sinful world to bring about God's promises. It is true, to grasp this truth, we need that sort of revolution. We need that sort of understanding that God is the one that is in control. God is at the center. And when we get to verse number 30 of Romans chapter 9, Paul raises a transitional question. It's the start of a new section, and he turns from emphasizing the sovereignty of God to now emphasizing or at least looking from the perspective of man's responsibility. Indeed, it's sort of a perspective change. To stick with the analogy, it's how the sun looks from the earth to us. Even though the earth rotates around the sun, we still call it a sunrise, don't we? We still call it a sunset. Why? Because that's how it looks to us, the sun coming up and going down, when in reality, we're the ones spinning. And so also here, Paul is showing us from the human perspective why it is that by and large, Israel has not come to salvation. He asks, what shall we say then? What shall we say since so many Gentiles have been chosen for salvation and many ethnic Jews have not? We could summarize these verses into four main points of what Israel has not done. But instead of doing that, of saying the negatives of what they did not do, I want to arrange these points into the positive about what all of us are supposed to do from the truth we find in these verses. So we're going to see those four things that are called out for us to believe in and trust in and do. We're going to see Paul in verse 30 to 33 call us to receive Christ by faith. 
Secondly, to submit to God's righteousness. Third, accept Christ for righteousness. And lastly, believe and confess the gospel. So let's begin in verse number 30 here and with our first point, receive Christ by faith. So Paul uses this question as we state it as a transition, saying, now what what shall we say to this fact of, again, the Gentiles and the Israelites, that God has chosen so many Gentiles while only choosing a remnant of the Jews. And basically, Paul says, here's what we say. We say that the Gentiles obtained what they did not pursue and that the Jews did not obtain what they did pursue. Gentiles not pursuing but finding. Jews pursuing but not finding. The Gentiles, you see, were not concerned with God. They weren't concerned with God's righteousness or with the Old Testament. Gentiles were not seeking how they could live in obedience to God's written word from the Scriptures. The Israelites, they were pursuing God. It says they were pursuing a law of righteousness. They were pursuing him, but they did not succeed in reaching obedience to the law or to God. One truth we see very quickly from these verses is this, again reiterated, you don't find God, God finds you. You see, the Christian message is, I once was lost, but now am found. I once was blind, but now I see. Apart from the mercy of God, no one would believe, no one would ultimately confess. And we see here, even those that were not pursuing God have found him. Those that were pursuing God by the law, they did not find him. There's also a great contrast taking place in these verses, and it's a a contrast for us of how the Gentiles come to God versus by how and large the ethnic Jews came to God. Listen to this contrast in verse 30 and 32. Look at with me one more time. Verse 30, what shall we say then, listen for the contrast, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is based on faith. But that Israel who pursued the law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. How did the Gentiles obtain righteousness? Do you see it? It was a righteousness that is by what? Faith. A righteousness that is by faith. How did the Israelites pursue righteousness? by works it was not a pursuit of faith and look at this very important statement in verse 32 Paul says why because they did not pursue it by faith look at what he says but as if it were based on works they pursued righteousness they went after the law as if salvation were based on works As we'll see, they had a a wrong view of the law of God. They attempted in their lives to keep the law, thinking that if they kept the law, it would make them righteous before God. 
The Gentiles, on the other hand, accepted it by faith. They accepted the message by faith. But the Israelites, or the Jews by and large, they sought salvation by obedience to the law. They sought to earn salvation by being obedient. They misunderstood the commandments of God. And they misapplied God's instruction to them, specifically from the Old Testament. So instead of trusting the promises of God for salvation and then bearing fruit and obedience based upon that salvation, they skipped that part. They skipped the trusting in the promises of God for salvation and they sought to come to God by obedience to the law. But as we've seen already in Romans chapter 4, verse number 13, the promise did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So what we see here is a wrong approach of coming to God, mainly from the Israelites. Taking God's Old Testament law and instruction to them of how they are to live, and they took that law and they said, let me live in obedience to this law so that God will be pleased with me. Unfortunately, we have our own Baptist version of this today. This was my experience growing up. What it looks like for us is, let me live in a good way, let me do the right things, and God will be pleased with me. God will accept me because I'm doing my best and trying my hardest to keep his word and to live in obedience to him. I remember thinking that way. I wouldn't uh, have verbalized it in that way because everybody knows we're not saved by works, right? We all, all know that. We all say that. But in reality and in my motivation, I would have to say that my obedience was done so that God would be pleased with me. And so I sought really hard to do the right things. I sought really hard to live in obedience to God and when I sinned, it crushed me because I thought that then God would not be pleased with me because I was disobedient to him which made me try to keep his commandments even more and more and more. I remember that point. Maybe you had a similar experience. I remember later as a teenager when I quit trying to please God for salvation and trusted in what he had done for me. And those of you that are trusting in Christ, you know that peace that that gives you when you come to God and you cease trying to live in obedience for salvation and you simply trust what God has done for you in Christ. I didn't know it at the time per se, but the only reason I made that decision was because God had enabled me to. He had taken me from death to life. In reality, I hadn't found him. He had found me. And just like these Jews in this day, we need to all ask ourselves, how are you coming to Christ today? Is it by a righteousness of faith? Or is it by a righteousness of good deeds? 
You know, on the surface, those things similarly look a whole lot alike because we're trying to keep the same things. But in reality, our motivation behind them could be something drastically different of seeking to live in obedience to God so that he will bring salvation to us. And that's exactly what we see happening here in this time period, and we see it happening in the churches today of people seeking to live in obedience to God to be granted salvation by him. Christ is like a stone, this verse says. Some stumble over him. And Paul quotes from Isaiah 28, 16 to show how Christ was always God's plan of salvation. Look with me in verse 32, the second part. It says, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Can you see the two contrasting things from this quote? Some stumble over Christ because they do not accept his work on their behalf. Others accept him and they will be saved. They will not be put to shame. The reason the Israelites here did not find salvation is because they sought to establish their own righteousness through the law. May we see our need to receive Christ by faith and not through works. You see, because Christ is that stumbling stone. Because when you're trying to establish your own righteousness before God, Christ says that will not work. Your righteousness is no righteousness in reality. Because it's based upon the righteousness of God's law that nobody has kept. And so Christ is seen as a stumbling stone. People just can't receive that. But likewise, for those who receive what Christ has done on their behalf, look at what the verse says. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. A stumbling stone for some, others, salvation. How will you come to him today? What great need we have to receive Christ by faith. Receive him by faith. By and large, that is what the Israelites of this day were not doing. They were seeking to establish salvation by law keeping. Second point we see here as we move into chapter 10, verse 1 to 4, is submit to God's righteousness. Again, Paul reiterates his desire to see the Jews come to salvation. Look at what he says in chapter 10, verse number 1. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Just like we've seen in chapter 9, verse 1 to 5, Paul is saying, here is my desire for my brothers and sisters. Ethnic Jews, here's my desire for them that they would be saved. Notice here what Paul does. It says Paul prays to God for them. And he says this right after he has described how we are not saved by human will or exertion, but only by God who has mercy. Back in chapter 9. 
You see, God's sovereignty and salvation does not lead us to throw up our hands and say, well, why pray? Why share the gospel if it's true that God chooses us for salvation? No, what we see the Apostle Paul doing right here is praying to God for the salvation of his people. This is right on the heels of what Paul has said just a few verses earlier of how God comes and moves by his grace and mercy upon us. And Paul here comes and he's praying to God that God would grant them salvation. Why do we pray to God for this? Because God is the only one that can do the work. And we come before him in prayer. And Paul greatly desires for his kinsmen to be saved. And he continues to explain why they are not trusting in Christ, why they have stumbled. He continues to explain that here. Here's why they are not saved. He doesn't say, notice in these verses, well, it's God's fault. It's God's fault they're not saved. No, it is man's fault. God is sovereign and we are culpable for our sins before him. In verse 2 to 3, Paul says, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. How does Paul describe the Israelites? He says that they're very zealous. Very zealous. Zeal. Zeal, you see, can be a good thing or a bad thing depending on what you're zealous about. The Israelites were zealous for God, but they were zealous to come to God through their own acts of obedience. They were not zealous for faith. They were not zealous for the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross in their place. They were very zealous to establish their own righteousness before God based upon the things that they had done. They were not wanting to highlight the righteousness of Jesus. They wanted to highlight their own righteousness, their own law-keeping. They would not submit to God's righteousness. You see, God's righteousness calls for mankind to stop seeking salvation by obedience. God's righteousness calls on us to stop trying to work our way to God, to stop trusting in our own good deeds, and to trust in the good deeds of another, namely Jesus Christ. It's just like that old hymn, Rock of Ages, states Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. You see, we are called to submit to that type of righteousness the righteousness of Jesus on the cross for us. Pride will keep us from the cross. Self-reliance 
will keep us from the cross. Trusting in your own obedience will keep you from the cross. Paul supports this truth with a grand statement in verse number four. He says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of using the law to try and be made right with God. Christ is the end of that. When we submit to God, when we stop seeking to establish our own righteousness with God, that is when Christ is the end of the law. Paul is calling on us in these verses to submit to God's way of salvation. Submit to God's way of salvation. This lack of submission on the part of the Jews is yet another reason they are culpable and why they had not received salvation. We see so clearly in this text the pride that they had. The pride in seeking to establish themselves before God instead of, as the text says, submitting to God's righteousness, that is a righteousness by faith, seeking to establish their own. Do you ever fall into that trap even in your Christian walk with Christ of seeking to establish your own righteousness to God? Of thinking, well, God, let me do these things and I know that you will be pleased with me and I know that you will accept me based upon my doing of these good things your word tells me to do. May we never be found to be those who seek to establish our own righteousness before God, but be those who always come back to say, Jesus Christ is my righteousness. Jesus Christ is the one who lived in obedience for me, and I trust in his righteousness to save. Paul calls on us to submit to that type of righteousness. In verses five to eight, he continues to support this truth that Christ is the end of the law to everyone who believes. That brings us thirdly to accept Christ for righteousness. Verses five to eight, accept Christ for righteousness. Another contrast is being made here between the righteousness of the law and the righteousness that's based on faith. We see the righteousness of the law in verse number five. Look at it. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. This is a quote or allusion to Leviticus 18.5. And at first blush here, when we look at this verse, it seems that Paul is saying that the person who does the law will live and be saved by the law. But that's not what Paul is teaching here. He's already taught clearly In Romans chapter 1 to 3, that we're all under sin, both Jew and Gentile. In fact, this verse was most probably used and misapplied by the Jews of that day as a proof text, as it were, to teach that obedience to the law did bring salvation. But if we were to go back and look at the context of Leviticus chapter 18, and if we had time to flip over to Galatians 3.12, where this verse is quoted again, we would see that this text does not teach salvation by works. In Leviticus chapter 18, it is stated that the Lord came to them and said, I am holy, you also be holy. 
It is God that had called his people out of slavery to Egypt and gave them his law to live in obedience to based upon what he had done for them. And this is just another way that the Jews of that day had come and said, I will keep these laws so that God will then receive me. But Paul contrasts that in verse 6 to 8. Look at what he says about the righteousness of faith. Paul says the righteousness of faith says this. Don't say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or go into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up. Now what in the world does all of that mean? Ascending into heaven to bring Christ down or going into the abyss to bring Christ up? At the end of the day here, Paul is contrasting doing with believing. Follow his logic with me in verse number six. The righteousness of faith says this. Don't say in your heart who will ascend to heaven or go down into the abyss. That is action. That is doing. And it is doing that we're not able to do. We're not able to bring Christ down from heaven. Only God can do that. And God has done that. We're not able to raise Christ from the abyss to go down and raise him up. But God has done that. Continuing the quote from Deuteronomy 9 and 30, Paul says, the word is near you. That is, it's close. It's available. It's in front of you. It's right here. And it's the word of faith that we proclaim. It's the righteousness that's based on faith in Jesus Christ. The truth of salvation, the truth of righteousness of God received by faith is right in front of us. And Paul says it's the gospel that I proclaim. You see, again here, Paul is saying it's not about doing, it's not about us grasping God or doing this to get him to go up, to go down. It's not about us keeping commandments. No, it's about accepting and receiving Christ. It's not about works, it's about through faith. It's not about doing, it's about receiving the message of salvation, Paul says, is near us, close to us. How sad it is to have the word of salvation so close to you, but to reject it. To seek to establish your own righteousness instead of receiving the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. This brings us to some amazing verses where Paul explains the content of this faith. These are beautiful passages. They describe for us, well, what does the righteousness of faith look like? What does it look like? If it's not about doing, if it's not about keeping the law so that God will forgive you of your sin, what does faith look like? Well, verse 9 to 13, we could say, believe and confess the gospel. Paul moves to explain the content of our faith, of that righteousness. And he's not going to talk in here about doing. Paul's not going to talk about, here's what you do. Listen to all of these things in here. It's receiving, it's believing, it's confessing. There are three main things that Paul is doing here in these verses. First, number one, Paul describes a living faith that is expressed through confession. Verse 9 to 10. Paul describes a living faith. These words are intentional. A living faith that is expressed through 
confession. Look at verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You see, the truth of the matter is, in and of itself, faith has never saved anybody. Faith has never saved anybody. Faith is only as good as the object of what you're trusting in. And in this verse, we see what the object of our faith is, right? People today have faith in lots of things, things that aren't of God, a faith that just things are going to work out for good. But Paul says, no, here's what our faith looks like. And we're to confess that Jesus is Lord. That's what faith looks like. And we're to believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. These are two very loaded statements, to say the least. Jesus is Lord is a confession that Jesus is who he says he is, that Jesus is king, that Jesus is ruling, that Jesus is reigning, and that Jesus was raised on the third day. That fact teaches us about his crucifixion, about his death, and of course about his victorious resurrection from the grave. Jesus was raised, the passage says, for our justification. These are things that we believe. These are things that we confess. We receive them as truth. It's our accepting these truths and believing these truths that lead to our confessing it. You see, mere confession of these verses will not save a mere confession that Jesus is Lord will not bring salvation. It's a trusting in what Christ has done, a receiving him, and then a confession based upon that faith. That is what Paul is talking about here that saves. Right? When we do evangelism, when we try to share the gospel with other people, we don't just try to get them to literally, verbally say, Jesus is Lord. Ha! <laughs> And we're done. Go on to the next person. That person is saved, right? And we might bring a very strong, large person with us, you know, on these types of evangelistic things, and we could share the gospel. They say, I don't believe that. And then this person can kind of walk over, say, you want to rethink that? And they can say, well, okay, Jesus is Lord. Uh, excellent. That's another salvation right there, right? That's not what he's speaking about. It is a confession that comes from a heart that receives what Christ has done on the cross for us. That truth leads to a confession with our lips that Jesus is Lord. He is ruling and he is reigning. Confess that with our mouths. Believe it in our hearts. Confession always springs from a proper faith and acceptance of the gospel. The righteousness of faith comes by this confession of Jesus. This is what it looks like. It's not based upon works. It's not based upon obedience. It's based upon simply receiving what God has said to us through Jesus Christ. That's what a living faith 
looks like. Secondly, Paul expresses the hope of salvation in verse number 11. The hope of salvation, and, and you kind of look through these at verse 9, because, verse number 10, 4, verse number 11, 4, verse number 12, 4, verse number 13, 4, right? Paul is just kind of bang, bang, bang. These things are true because of this, 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 and this, and all of these things, these beautiful truths. Verse number 11 says, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Oh, what beautiful words those are for us this morning. Quoted again from Isaiah 28, 16. What a beautiful promise from the one who is making this promise. God Almighty is speaking about the future salvation and judgment that is to come. The future judgment of when we die, of when Christ returns because salvation and judgment always go together because it's a salvation and a saving from judgment and Paul says in these verses just listen to this again if you're trusting in Christ today will you just listen to these words everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame receive Jesus Christ. Third, Paul explains how the gospel is for everyone. It's for everyone, verse 12 to 13. He comes back here to the Jew-Gentile divide that uh, he's been speaking of and explaining. And he clearly shows how the gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for the Jew and the gospel is for the Gentile. Same gospel. One people of God through one gospel message. There's one Lord, there is one faith, there's one salvation, there's one people of God. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul is crystal clear here. God has graciously made one way of salvation for every person. Whether you're a Jew, whether you're Greek, the Savior is the same. And look at the promise. Look at that beautiful promise at the end of verse number 12. God bestows his riches on all who call on him, who come to him by faith and not by works of the law. God is the one who bestows those riches. Let me just cue you in on something this morning. God has a lot of riches to give. He will graciously give us all things. Reminds me of one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. Luke 12, 32. I love this verse. Jesus speaking to his people. He says, fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You see, God is the one who bestows to us, who calls us into his kingdom, who calls us into his rule and reign, his 
new heavens and new earth that is to come. All of the riches that he has, he bestows on us through Christ Jesus. And look, there's no distinction. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. There's no distinction between anybody or people. It's the same gospel message. The same Lord is the same Lord of all. Everyone who calls on him will be saved. Saved from what? Saved from your sin. Saved from the judgment of the wrath of God that is to come. Everyone who calls on him, who trusts in Jesus Christ, will be saved. Will you believe this message by faith? If you're someone who is on the outside, who looks like you're living a good Christian life, but on the inside, you know that the way that you are living is so that God will accept you. If that is you here this morning, will you lay down your efforts and your good deeds and simply trust in the work of Jesus Christ to save you? Trust in him alone. Confess Jesus to be Lord. In conclusion, this morning, I'd like to just say four final reflections from these verses, just kind of four things to try to impress home upon us. First off is this evidence of God's election is seen in how we come to him. Evidence of God's election is seen in how we come to him. It's a fabulous question to ask yourself, especially after reading Romans chapter 9, to honestly ask, your, ask yourself, am I one of the elect of God? Has God chosen to save me? I think that we should all be asking that question. That's a great question to ask. What we see, and we've seen here, that no one seeks after God, and that it is those who come to God based on a righteousness that is by faith who will be received. So, listen, here's the point. If you're asking this question, if you're asking, am I elect of God, realize that your very desire to believe and trust in Jesus is evidence of God's work in your life. Realize that that is God that is at work. Realize that you would not want to trust in Jesus for forgiveness of your sins if he wasn't doing a work in you. In other words, your desire, again, to believe in Jesus is evidence of God working in your life. So acknowledge that and come to Jesus Christ and confess him and receive the promise of God that all who come to him will be saved. Come and trust in Jesus Christ. Evidence of God's election is seen in our desire to come to him for salvation by faith. And praise God for the work that he's done in your life. Romans chapter 9, this first part has been heavy hitting, deep waters of the reality that takes place underneath the surface of our faith in God and our trust in God. And what we need to see is the work of God doing underneath 
motivating, changing our desires, and we need to trust in Christ and give God praise for what he is doing. Second, we cannot teach morality apart from Christ and the gospel. We cannot teach morality apart from Christ and the gospel. We need to teach how we're supposed to live and let us never separate that from the gospel. May we never lead people to confusion or inadvertently come across as teaching, if you do this or live this way, then Christ will save you. May we always teach that we are rotten sinners. No matter how good we might look compared to others, that we always need Jesus' righteousness to save us from sin. It's never based upon our works. It's always based upon the works of Jesus Christ. Let's be crystal clear in that as a church. Obedience is the fruit of our salvation, not the cause of our salvation. It's only through what Christ has done for us. Third, zeal in and of itself is not enough to save Zeal in and of itself is not enough to save. We especially need to hear this in our day and age. There is a category in Scripture for sincere, zealous people who will not be saved. We must have zeal, okay? We must have zeal, but what must we have it with? With knowledge. Zeal with knowledge, zeal with the truth, not zeal without knowledge or the truth. We must have zeal in what Jesus Christ has done on the cross for us. We must have zeal not to put ourselves on some sort of pedestal to say, look at our works that we have done. We must have a zeal to always point to what Jesus Christ has done on the cross for us. That must be our zeal in evangelism. That must be our zeal in our obedience to always be thankful for what Christ has done on the cross for us. Zeal in and of itself is not enough to save. R.C. Sproul said, the fire in our hearts is not simply heat, but also light, which come from God's word. It's a heat, it's a light, but it's based upon the knowledge of scripture. May our zeal always be according to God's word. Fourth and lastly, may we, and I tried to cram a whole lot into this one, may we believe, adore, defend, and proclaim this amazing gospel message to everyone. Right, may we believe it, may we receive what Jesus has done for us. If you're here this morning, if you're not trusting in Christ, would you hear that the gospel message is not about us doing to make God receive us? The gospel message is all about us coming and saying, I can't save myself. I need a savior. I need somebody to save me from my sin because I confess I am a sinner and I've fallen short of the glory of God. I've not kept his promises and that's what we are. We're a whole bunch of honest people that come saying we're bad people and we need somebody to save us and that's Jesus Christ. And adore him, to adore it, to be amazed by what God has done for us in our lives. Just pause for a minute. If you're trusting in Christ here this morning, 
Will you just pause and just, here, I'm almost done, I promise. This one last thing. Your very believing and trusting as God, trusting in God is evidence of God's work in your life. God is working in your life. God is moving in your life by your desire to receive him. Just let that soak in and thank God for the work that he is doing. Adore him and what he's done for you and defend it. May we always be people who defend that we're not saved by our doing but by the doing of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we have to proclaim this message. We have to proclaim this message. We have to take this message to ourselves, to our neighbors, and to this world. If the church doesn't do it, who will? God has called us to be faithful. God has called us to take this message that we're not saved based upon our doing, but what Christ has done for us. And now I'm already up and up, off and running into Adam's passage in verse 14 and following. But may we see here our need to take this message to others, the message of freedom, the message of salvation for what Christ has done for us. May we always be people who don't look to ourselves, but always look to the God who's made a promise for someone outside of ourselves, Jesus Christ. May we always turn our eyes and look at him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you this morning afresh and we confess together this morning we're not saved based upon our good things that we have done. Lord, help us be a people who are overwhelmed by the grace you've shown us in Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for having mercy upon us. All glory, all honor and praise be to Christ our Savior. In his name we pray, amen.